and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is J. Remy Green, a partner at Cohen and Green PLLC. They will discuss their article, All Your Works Are Belong to Us, New Frontiers for the Derivative Work Right in Video Games, which is published in the North Carolina Journal of Law and Technology. So welcome to the show, Remy. It's great to be back, Brian. Yeah, I'm really, it's so funny that Luce and I both wanted to interview you at basically the same times. It's a wonderful sort of coincidence and on very different kinds of of papers as well. And I, I wanted to just say, like, f- for listeners who are, you know, tuning in for this show, I really enjoyed reading your paper, not only because it's obviously a subject area that's near and dear to my heart, you know, copyright, uh, derivative works, uh, fair use, but also because your scholarship is so full of these like wonderful little, little nuggets, like little, little things that, um, that you wouldn't, wouldn't always expect to see, you know, um, or, you know, when you, when you come across them, it's always a, a real pleasure. So, so thanks for that. It made reading, it made me, made reading the paper that much more fun. Well, that, that, that exactly is the goal. <laughs> well, so, so Remy, I was wondering if for listeners who might not be copyright scholars, you could talk a little bit about the way in which copyright in video games as audiovisual work specifically uh, really functions. In other words, you know, sort of like what aspects of a video game can, are or can be protected and how do courts conceptualize copyright protection of video games in those terms? Yeah, of course. Um, just kind of a because I can't help but speak in footnotes, a footnote to this whole discussion is, is I think it's very funny for you and I to be uh, setting out the rules of copyright as two people who uh, in many ways fall on the copy left. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but you know, the, I think the paper aims to actually describe a regime as opposed to uh, set, up, set out reasons to burn it down. So, so we'll, we'll go from there. Um, uh, basically, video games are, are, are a weird thing. Um, and speaking historically without talking too much about the detail games in general don't get copyright protection, right? So, like, Settlers of Catan, not copyrightable unless, you know, the, the, the manual itself is copyrightable, but the game isn't. Um, on the other hand, traditional audio-video works, like, like movies, um, being the, kind of the big, big example, are copyrightable and are copyrightable as such. And so what has historically happened is video games are protected as audio-visual works under the Copyright Act. Um, and because the copyright system has unequivocally made that choice, right, that, that these fall into a copyrightable category, um, while there are, there are a number of questions about what it entails, unambiguously video games get protection and they get all the protection. Mm, yeah, I mean, one analogy you used in the paper that I thought was actually really 
really helpful was sort of thinking about the, like it seems like the way that courts think about video games is kind of analogous to like a choose your own adventure novel in the sense that like yes you're making choices about what order things are happening in but the choices are constrained by the author of the underlying work in question is, 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 am i am i getting your analogy correctly i, I think that's exactly it and that that I think segues us very nicely into the actual question in the paper. So courts have historically conceptualized th this issue, and in part because the games that they've been talking about do work this way, um, as basically they're movies with some stuff in them. Uh, and, and so in that sense, just like if I gave you a timestamp in The Godfather, you'd know what's happening on screen. If I gave you a wave number in in, in invaders you'd know exactly where, where where you were and what was on screen or if i gave you a stage you know a level on pac-man you'd know what was going on um and and you know the the legal system lags so far behind the real world especially in technology contexts but all of the major decisions that are out there about video games really do concern games that work in this very linear way um and what the paper deals with and, and the question that i, I think the paper suggests that the legal the legal system is going to have to answer sooner rather than later is, well, video games don't really look like that anymore. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't think um, the, the decisions that exist would know what on earth to do with a game that's blowing up right now, like Animal Crossing, um, let alone things like Minecraft or, um, you know, the, the example at the center of the paper um, in many ways uh, the, the map editor type mods that become their own games like Defense of the Ancients. Mm, yeah, so I mean, a lot of the paper is focused on ways in which non-game creators use video games as a medium in which to create works that are new works or at least works with new elements that aren't necessarily part of or even intended by the original game. And so for people who might not be kind of in that world, you you, you give sort of four different paradigmatic examples of ways in which that might happen. Maybe there's more, but I thought those were pretty illustrative of kind of different variables that might be taking place. Maybe you could kind of walk listeners through like some of these ways in which people use video games essentially as a kind of a language rather than as a movie. Yeah. So the four examples I use in the paper, um, obviously, uh, they're, they're, they are meant to just kind of capture an intuition each, let's say, um, and, and represent that there, are, there is more than one thing going on here in, in, in this, this space where the basic question is, uh, who owns the thing that's coming out of culture right now? Um, and, and so... The, the, the four examples um, are, are meant to show people like legal scholars who might not be familiar with the space what's going on and how it is and is not like what they've seen before. So I, I should probably just say the four examples, right? Um, so the, the first of the four examples um, is talking about people who stream speed runs of things. Um, and for those who are not familiar, a lot of 
older games. Uh, communities have sprung up around these games. Uh, there's somebody running for Congress right now who, who I think speedruns Mario 2 um, and sometimes does it for campaign events. And that's, that's a wild thing, right? Um, <laughs> uh, and and what, what happens in these spaces is people move through the game that's been, that's been built, right, that was supposed to take a certain amount of time as quickly as possible. Um, one of the interesting things about this is unlike a lot of the things we're going to talk about at the other examples, um, what's most distinctive about a speedrun is rather than adding any content, it cuts content out of the game. Um, but beyond, you know, how, however much entertaining the person swearing when they screw up or um, or kind of making jokes about the game as they go might add, at its core, it really just is a faster way through um, a game. And so I, I think, um, by and large, that play of a game is is going to draw out the intuition that whoever made the original game should be able to control in some way um, the 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 works that that uh, at least you know assuming that traditional copyright intuitions apply uh, should be able to control the the output in some way. Um, and then the paper also kind of footnotes that there are a lot of clearinghouse and and uh, economy of scale issues, and that the the community has basically arrived at a well we're just going to do this, and the developers have decided yeah we're not going to sue them. Um, and mm, we'll we'll mm. see how long that holds. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like the speed play paradigm is like one in which the gameplay in question is literally sort of dictated by the choices made by the creator of the original game. In other words, you're just trying to kind of solve the puzzle in the most efficient way possible. Exactly, and and you know that that's doing that is is in fact the instruction the game maker gives you um <laughs> right uh th that the game maker didn't think you would figure out a certain solution is is almost neither here nor there um mm -hmm. so the second example um is is actually based on a, a a troll comment um online that made me say well hold on a second they're wrong about just about everything but that's interesting <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and, and I know you and I are both very familiar with that set of thoughts, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. but, but it basically, uh, is based around, um, that there's a critic who, who takes videos of, of, of gameplay and in a very traditional academic way, um, except for the fact that they're video games being put into a YouTube video, um, uses these block quotes to talk about um, the the content and messaging and, and engage in traditional criticism of video games as if they were literature um, or as if they were any other kind of culture. What, it, what makes it interesting is sometimes, uh, at least the accusation was, that she took, not by playing the game herself, these videos, but instead found uh, what are called Let's Play videos of somebody else doing it um, because for whatever reason, maybe they had, maybe she didn't have time, maybe she didn't happen to record when she, when the relevant plot moment happened, maybe, um, you know, she, she messed up in some way that she didn't want to, to happen in the video, or maybe, you know, 
uh, at issue here was kind of some some violence, and she didn't feel comfortable personally engaging in the violence in the game. Um, but for whatever reason, she, the accusation was that she had stolen a Let's Player's um, content, stripped out the audio of it, and then it recorded her own audio track critiquing the game itself. Um, and so the question was, does this Let's Player, right, does this person who is who has created this video that she has taken something from own anything that's distinct from the underlying game. Mm, mm, mm. Well, you know what, one thing that struck me when I was reading the paper and and I, I just don't know the community well enough to even have a sense of that, but I mean like among the people who create these let's play videos, are there kind of norms in that community as to ownership of particular gameplay sessions or you know are they are they relatively kind of laissez-faire about sort of attribution of particular videos that's a good question and i don't have a definite answer right i I haven't engaged in a cultural study Um, beyond kind of my intuitions um I, i will happily be corrected if anyone tells me i'm wrong but i think that uh by and large the Let's Play community thinks of my Let's Play, right? If I, if I stream it, it would be offensive within that community if somebody just redubbed the audio, um, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of in, in terms of community norms, that's very far from the academic norm, which is uh, if I'm going to criticize something, obviously I'm going to pull content. Um, and then the only thing that that's that that pushes against that particular intuition is, am I pulling content to criticize the Let's Player, or am I pulling content from the Let's Player to criticize the developer? Um, and, I, and I think, and I, and I say it in the paper, there are definitely two ways you could think of depending on the clip and depending on what she's critiquing in the clip. Um, but yeah, I, I think that you're right to look to community norms, but then again, the copyright system generally doesn't. Mm, mm, mm. Well, and I, and, and I guess the other question I would have, and the, you draw out this distinction in the paper between using the video merely to criticize the underlying game itself versus using the video to criticize the in-game choices made by the Let's Play video. I and mean, they, they do seem like rhetorically different. Are they different from a copyright standpoint at all, do you think? Well, I, I think certainly from a standing perspective, right? And, and maybe maybe that's just a, well, I'm thinking about who gets to sue who because I, I actually practice. Um, but but I, I think it, it is meaningful from, from a standing perspective. And more importantly, um, given that what we're talking about is... Um, an instance, and maybe we could craft the hypothetical otherwise if we wanted to test something else. But the reason I picked, I drew the hypothetical this way is I wanted her to have a clear fair use defense against the, defel- the, the developer, mm. right? And, and, and I think academic criticism, at least if you're not going to take the heart of the work and dump, dump the whole thing in your paper, um, you get a lot of leeway for for doing academic criticism and using parts of the work to critique it. And so what, what's so interesting to me, or, and what was so interesting to me about this troll comment that, that I think, as, as you correctly identified, comes out of 
the fact that there is a community norm there. Um, what, what was so interesting about the hypothetical is it, it was not clear um, whether that, that the person complaining, even if they would have a leg to stand on in the community, had any standing in the legal sense. And, and that question would, would ultimately um, depend on what answer we arrive at in the paper. And in case we haven't said it clearly, the ultimate question is, okay, once video games get to this point where rather than moving like a movie through something, you're really creating something new, right? Um, in, in Minecraft, you've created a castle that the developer couldn't have possible, possibly conceived of. Um, but once you've reached that point, um, the, the paper's ultimate question is, well, who owns that? Mm -hmm. Well, so you you talk about a third paradigm, which I've always found especially interesting because I've had, you know, a lot of friends of mine have worked in this medium of uh, machinima, more or less. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, what that is and kind of how you think we ought to conceptualize that kind of use of video games from a originality copyright perspective. Yeah. So machinima... Um, is basically a puppet show with a video game, right? It, it, it involves using the video game, whatever options the video game gives you to manipulate a character. Um, sometimes it includes uh, doing a little more and, and messing with the code. Sometimes uh, it involves other things. But by and large, it's kind of a, we've gotten this tool um, that maybe wasn't designed as, as a tool to do this, but we film it, we overdub new audio, and suddenly um, one of the, I think the, the main example I talk about is a show called Red versus Blue, which is created in, in the multiplayer, um, or at least initially was created in the multiplayer engine from Halo, um, and, and rather than killing each other, uh, people got together and moved the characters around, around and kind of... Uh, dubbed audio that was supposed to be the characters talking mm, mm, mm. and it kind of i mean i love the kind of existential like <laughs> <laughs> enemy of the uh of the text in question and, and i feel like over the years i've seen so many of these and a lot of artists really seem to have engaged in that you know in that way of using the video game milieu as the basis for an alternative text. I mean, I was immediately thought of a, a, well, a sadly deceased friend of mine, Phil Solomon, who made a, uh, uh, Andy Warhol inspired empire state building, uh, view, uh, using, I think it was grand theft auto. <laughs> oh, I think I read a law review article. About that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, um, it, it's 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 very clearly something that that doesn't take a whole lot to 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 grab onto, and and just one one quirk of this space is I think more than uh, traditional copyright holders, a lot of developers have 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 invited this right um, rather than than uh, sue Red versus Blue, at least as I understand what happened, uh, Microsoft and, and and the relevant developer. Um, immediately said, yes, we love this. Let's get it into syndication with Red versus Blue. Um, and as far as I know, the, the, the other big example I talk about in the paper is, is the, the South Park episode that was made with World of Warcraft. And I, I'm, I don't think that there was any fighting between them about it, right? I, th I think Blizzard immediately 
jumped on and said, yeah, we love this idea. Um, so, so, you know, I, I think one interesting feature of the space is these things have not been litigated as much as they could have, so we don't have as many answers. Um, and the norm in the space has, has very much been that you are allowed to do this. Mm-hmm. Well, for, I mean, from a doctrinal perspective, I mean, where do you think at least the ways that courts currently think about copyright and specifically copyright in video games and sort of associated doctrinal features. Like if you were to predict where courts would come down <laughs> in a litigation of this kind, always a risky move, I know. Um, right. But like, you know, what would you see them doing and why? So in the paper, I talk about some older cases, which are the two, just because they happen to involve the same artist and that makes it very neat. But I talk about the Coons cases out of the second circuit. Um, and in one, uh, this artist Coons um, takes a, a picture or a, a postcard of two people with some puppies and turns it into a sculpture and says, I'm, cri- I'm critiquing the mundanity of like this entire genre of thing. And the court says, mm, no, you're not. Um, or at least says, okay, yes, if you are, um, that means that you're not critiquing this individual work. And in fact, then you're infringing the copyright and, and, and the, the, that author's right to create derivative works. Um, in, a, in another Kuhn's case, he takes kind of a collection of pictures of feet um, from various ads and puts them all together in, in this one painting. Um, and something about taking those multiple works and putting them together and something about uh, the fact that the, the court thought that he was um, really getting at something core to the individual copyrighted app um, work in the, in the, you know, one of them was a Gucci ad. And, and so in the Gucci ad um, and, and that the, the work he created was critiquing and, and in conversation with that in, in the relevant way, um, th- they held that this use of that work was transformative and, and that he he did not need to um, get permission from the copyright holder in that case. So, you know, I, I highlight these two cases because I think um, they're not really uh, that different. And, and, the Second Circuit has, has decided a number of other cases in, in, in recent year, in more recent years, but I don't think clarify things a whole lot. Um, so what, what do I think the courts are going to do with machinima if, if, if it comes down to it? Um, hard to predict, but I think um, the more that the work is, is used less as kind of a, oh, it, we, this is the game that happened to make this the easiest, and is directed at making fun of the game itself. So Blizzard's um, episode uh, of, of or I'm sorry, I got all the names wrong. The South Park episode made with World of Warcraft was talking about World of Warcraft addiction. It was talking about the way that communities interact with this game. It was talking about Blizzard itself in a lot of ways in the game. And so I, I think that use would, would very obviously to me, seem to fall under traditional fair use. It, w- it would be transformative in the relevant way. Whereas um, Red versus Blue, I don't know that you could, you could at least, if you were the developer and you wanted to stop that use, make the argument that 
what's being critiqued here isn't Halo itself, it's first-person shooter games in general, right? The, the, the opening episode of Red vs. Blue has this wonderful exchange where somebody says, why are we here? And, and the other character goes on an existential discussion of, yes, why are we here? That's the real question. And the other's like, no, like literally, why are we in this bizarre um, circled in math where the only reason we're here is to destroy the red base and the only reason they're, they're here is to destroy the blue base. Um, and, you know, I, I think that, that you could at least construct an argument there that what's being critiqued is not Halo and Halo specifically, but the, but the first person shooter genre and it, all of its conceits. And, and then, you know, the, the further you walk down that path, I think the more likely a court is going to ultimately say, hmm, we think that you're not really adapting this in a meaningful way. And I think that goes all the way. Um, there, there's a case I talk about out of New Jersey um, about Tetris. Um, where, just to kind of illustrate the point, all of the doctrine points to the rules of a game are not copyrightable. And so somebody makes a Tetris clone and clearly consulted with their lawyers because the lawyer said, yeah, you can copy the rules, you just can't copy characters and you can't copy um, code. And so they did that, right? They reproduced Tetris exactly and they lost the case. Um, and, and I think it just came from the court saying, mm, we really don't think that that's okay. We can't explain why, but that's not okay. Yeah, no, that I I, I had not heard of that case before, and it was actually a, I was very happy. Well, <laughs> I was very I was very interested to see it because it totally reminded me of like Ario and Grokster and so many other cases that seem to have a really similar kind of motivating rationale in the sense of like, well, we can't really explain doctrinally why what you're doing is wrong because you literally are doing what we told you to do but substantively that's not what we meant not like that <laughs> yeah yeah well you know and, and one thing that was really interesting about the machinima part of the paper to me was the way in which it really kind of is in tension with the logic of the court recognizing copyright protection as an audiovisual work in video games in the first place. In other words, to the extent the logic is, well, it's not a copy, you know, the gameplay isn't copyrightable because you're just following the rules set out by the game designer. I mean, in a sense, the whole point of Machinima is to frustrate the rules created by the game designer. And, and I wonder if that you think that logic matters for the kind of from a kind of copyright perspective or not? I do. I I do. I think that that logic absolutely matters. And there's a, there's a bit in the paper where, where I, I propose maybe we should think about, you know, the amount of there being some sort of sliding scale test where the less linear a game is, the less protection it gets. Um, and kind of the less, the less of its elements um, get protection. Um, I'm not exactly sure how that would play out, and, and I don't think courts are, you know, there are no cases out there trying anything like it. Um, and so, you know, I, I have no idea how that would play out. Um, I, I just kind of, to skip ahead, the, ne the next example we're going to go to is Defense of the Ancients, and th there's just been, uh, what, I, what I went and checked up on is, Apparently, some Defense of the Ancients litigation did happen in a very bizarre way, and, and of course, they didn't get into any of the interesting issues. 
Um, and instead, they, they focused on, did you copy characters, which are a copyrightable element um, under, under kind of separate lines of cases that aren't discussed in the paper. Getting back to your question, though, um, what I think in almost all digital cases, the, the real fight in the case is, is always about what is the right meat space metaphor for what's going on. And so kind of to the way you described it, I'm, I'm almost picturing somebody kind of, if I were to make a Settlers of Catan video series and kind of take, you know, the robber piece and, and do a voice as it was talking to like the wheat tile. Um, I think, you know, obviously games don't get protection and or board games don't get the same kind of protection as video games. And I think it's a lot more like that than like, say, for example, um, and this is out there, redubbing an episode of X-Men with very profane uh, <laughs> um, jokes. <laughs> yeah, almost like an Air Pirates type thing, yeah, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, or, or even, for example, uh, like a Mystery Science Theater. Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, so you talk about a kind of a fourth set of examples as well, where it seems like the people using the game are bringing a lot more original content to the table. I, I, I mean, I wonder if you could talk about that and like sort of in addition, and one of the things that I really thought was provocative about the paper was sort of like how that makes us think about what it means for something to be a game in the first place. Yeah. So, so, so. You know, it's taken us a while, but I think this is the heart of the paper. And, and so the example, just to kind of talk about it, I'm going to talk about it very reductively because there's a lot of complexity here that I don't think matters for the academic purpose. And I, I think all of the relevant possible cases have settled at this point. So it doesn't matter in a real world way either. But okay, so in 1990-whatever or 2000-whatever, Blizzard puts out a game called Warcraft 3. One of the key features of Warcraft 3 is it comes with an onboard world editor. And what that world editor does is the, ga the game exists, you can play it, it has a campaign, it has online multiplayer, um, so there's a story you can play through in the, in the traditional, linear, traditional linear way. There are kind of repetitive matches that you can play through online. But you can also build new maps. And one of the features of building new maps is you can not only build physical maps, but you can put in timed events. You can put in kind of, if the player does X, Y happens. Um, and so you can kind of create these, these in-depth experiences. Um, and I think the original thought was that these would mirror the kind of uh, campaign experience. So you, you could theoretically make like, Warcraft three and a half and make an adventure for your favorite character who didn't get enough screen time in the main campaign or, or things like that. And you could, you could go online and you could download other people's maps um, and, and you could play them. So out of that comes this, this just balloon in, in community involvement and the community ends up developing what are essentially completely different games, but that are still, I think, definitively Warcraft games. And one of these games is a game called Defense of the Ancients, which rather than controlling a whole army, you control one unit in the army, like one super unit in the army. And you, you play that unit, you, you level up that unit, 
and you try to, um, with four other people who are human beings playing on your team, beat a team of five people uh, who are also human beings. Um, and so it, it, it kind of plays out very differently, but it has a distinct feel like the game. Um, and and this, this mod, um, initially called Defense of the Ancients, um, or I'm sorry, not initially called Defense of the Ancients. I forget what it was initially called. I think Aeon Flux, but it becomes Defense of the Ancients. Um, goes huge. It, 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 it is. It has now become, in many ways, um, I think, the biggest multiplayer game in the world, or at least it plus the, the clones of it and the, the spiritual successors, like which include games like League of Legends, are the biggest thing in the the, the competitive video game universe right now. Um, I know uh, AOC just tweeted about uh, achieving a certain rank in League of Legends. And, and so, you know, these games are massive, massive, massive. Um, and so, unfortunately, the cases that address this don't address things quite like it. So the closest thing that exists in existing doctrine is a case called Microstar out of the Ninth Circuit. Um, and that's a case about a game called Duke Nukem, which had a map editor, but I think it was a much more limited map editor. Um, and and what, what you could do in that game is you could build new maps, but I think building those maps, and, and I, I could be wrong, I have not opened the Duke Nukem map editor in, in at, at least a decade or two. Um, you were limited to say, put a wall here, put an enemy here. And, and in many ways, the Duke Nukem game that it was played that it was based on was also just a much more linear game it was point gun at, at pig cop shoot pig cop um walk forward get power up finish level um and so you have this case and, and what the ninth circuit ultimately says in this case is look what you're doing in the map editor is building new duke nukem adventures these are just duke nukem sequels and so uh, this company that was selling without, without, um, there was a trademark issue, but the court ultimately puts it to one side, um, without selling literally a single thing made by the developer of Duke Nukem, um, and without, you know, with, without the, the, the map pack that they were selling, they were selling a map pack, um, being able to generate, um, anything on its own. Right, like if you put this disc that you bought into your computer, Duke Nukem didn't happen. The court still says, well, but if you ultimately plug it in because you made it in this map editor, and you know because the source is here, and because the purpose is to build Duke Nukem sequels, and because that's what ultimately it does if you do it in the right way, we're going to find that this is a derivative work that 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 the original developer had all the rights to, and so um, I think the ultimate result in that case was that they had to burn all the all the all the map packs. Mm -hmm. Well, and I and, and so you used you know, or you rather you you posed this question of what it means for something to be a game in the first place, and I thought that was a really clever example of using the old Clippy feature from <laughs> yes. Microsoft Word. So, I mean, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit and why you think Clippy sort of complicates <laughs> the paradigm that courts use to think about what counts as a game and why. 
Islander sentences uttered for the first time ever. Uh, Clippy complicates the paradigm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, the hypothetical here is basically, okay, so we've got these things called map editors. And, and you know, we, the rule that we have is something made in a map editor. Uh, you know, the rule coming out of the MicroStar case is something made in a map editor belongs to the person who built the map editor. Um, and so the, 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 the hypothetical is meant to test how far that goes, right? And so I, I, I came up with, okay, so Microsoft, right? They give you a blank document. But not so long ago, they did have a character, right? This, this paperclip that asked you, uh, it looks like you're writing a letter. Would you like help? Um, and, you know, I, I think anyone who used Microsoft in that generation remembers him not so fondly. Um, <laughs> and, and so the, the hypothetical was, what if Microsoft comes out with this required update that says that, that rebrands Word as Microsoft Word colon Clippy Adventures um, and, and starts referring in all of its literature and, and, and everywhere to Microsoft Word as a game. And this is our map editor. Um, coming out of the Microsoft case, what, what courts have said is basically we think that the terms of service and the end user license agreement basically control the terms of things. So what if Microsoft says, you know, well, our terms of service have always said we, we and I don't know whether this is true or not, but, um, but you know, we're, we're academics here, so I don't have to be grounded in that. Um, so what, what if it turns out Microsoft has said, um, we own all derivative works from Word forever. And once they kind of flip this switch and turn it into a game, they, they then start saying, yeah, so we own anything you ever wrote in Microsoft Word because that's a derivative work of Clippy Adventures. Um, I think that obviously the, the, the purpose of this hypothetical is there is no chance on earth any court would do anything other than say, no fucking way. And oh wait, am, am I allowed to swear on this? Absolutely. Um, so yeah, uh, obviously you would get a species of no fucking way as, as the verdict in this case. And, and as, as the result, and it might be kind of as, as unexplained as the Tetris case. But given that we know that the, that the, that the hypothetical has to end there, Obviously, between MicroStar and Clippy Adventures, we have there has to be a line somewhere. And so the rest of the paper is is geared at surely we can find a place for that line. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I mean I, I I love what you did in the last bit in the paper, and I want to get to that in one second. But there was a hypo that came to my mind when I was reading your paper, and I I it's just it's burning I like I have yeah, to ask you. Let's right? do it. So so I just started using TikTok for the very first <laughs> time ever. And I found I personally found TikTok both incredibly frustrating and also kind of fascinating because it's so lacking in versatility, right? I mean, it like, it looks like a platform that will let you create whatever you want, but actually the platform really wants you to create something very, very particular. And it's sort of steering people in the same direction to do the same kinds of things. And so I kind of wonder, like, is TikTok a game or is TikTok more of a tool for creating works of authorship? And how do we how do we decide where to 
put it. And if TikTok is a game, is that a problem? Yeah, that's that's the question, isn't it? Um, I think the boring answer is, well, it depends what the plaintiff calls it in the complaint. Right? That, 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 that's kind of how our legal system answers a lot of questions. And, and, and so if, if you ask me, what is, what is TikTok likely to call their, their application when they sue people? I don't think they're going to call it a game. And so maybe that's the answer. But that's, a, that's obviously dodging the question. Um, I think the answer is under MicroStar, it looks like they would have a reason to call it a game. And certainly, you know, I've played games that are more boring than TikTok. Um, and it's not like that's a new issue. That's, it's not like that's a, that's a new categorization problem slash question, right? Like, I remember um, on the Super Nintendo, there was Mario Paint. And uh, Mario Paint was not a game. Right, it, it was it was a drawing tool, and it also had a a music composer in it, um, but it certainly was not a game in any sense other than you had a cartridge that you put in your Super Nintendo. Um, and I think you know that I could come up with any number of examples from throughout the history of of games, but but. What's interesting about the moment in gaming that we're in is that um, that line is getting blurrier and blurrier, right? And, and that's Minecraft. That that's in some ways Animal Crossing. That that we put these game skeletons on creating thing on the, on creative processes that you know if you strip away the game elements, in many ways just look like you know real estate design software or, you know, any number of other things. So to, to the TikTok question, you know, maybe all you need to do is, is add TikTok's version of Clippy and suddenly it's a game. Mm, mm, mm. Well, so to, 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 to transition to the framework, which I think is really interesting. And, and I must say, I love the fact that you sort of capitulate to your Chicago training <laughs> And go with Calabresi and Melamed as the the framing. I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the framework you develop and why you think it's helpful for thinking about the kinds of problems that these kinds of authorship tools create. Sure. And so, since we're we're, we're not going to assume people know copyright, I, I assume we should we should also not assume that people know know the Calabresi and Melamed framework uh, from that article. So very briefly, they spend a lot of time talking about pollution and liability rules versus um, property rules. And what they mean by that is, let's say that my neighbor is polluting um, and, and it bothers me. We, can, we traditionally conceive of three different possible results, right? In result number one, which they call rule number one, is that I get an injunction against them that prohibits them from polluting. Rule number two is that they get to continue polluting if they pay me damages. Um, and rule number three is that 
which is no liability, um, is that they, they can continue polluting and they also don't have to pay me damages, right? Um, and what's novel about the, their framework is they conceive of rule one and three as belonging to this kind of rule called a property rule, or which, which amounts to an injunction. And they conceive of rule two um, as belonging to a category that they call a liability rule or a damages rule. And what's novel about what they did is they said, well, hold on, uh, you know, a, a, we have an answer for what happens if the, the entitlement to pollute belongs to me and we get an injunction rule. We have a rule for what if the, the, the entitlement belongs to the polluter and we have a property rule, but we don't have a, a result at all if we have a damages rule, but it turns out the entitlement belongs to the polluter. And so what they conceived of was, well, what if courts did this thing where they said, you know, ultimately we think that the, that the, the right to pollute belongs to the polluter, but we also think they should have paid the person next to them to do it. So we're going to give them the right to keep polluting, um, but we're going to also, um, or, or I'm sorry, uh, in, in this case, I've gotten it completely wrong. Uh, that the entitlement but belongs to the polluter, but uh, that, that, the, that I'm allowed to buy it from. Um, and, and the fact that I, I mixed that up shows you how long it's been since I've played with this framework. Um, but, and it turns out, they write this article, the literature goes crazy, everyone loves this thing. Um, it, uh, law and economics spends uh, forever talking about this, but I, I can't, think of, and I'm sure there's some case out there applying it, but rule, what are called rule four um, frameworks don't really go anywhere as far as I know. Um, and so what was interesting to me about this is looking at, the, at this framework, um, and, and we alluded to it earlier um, in, insofar as I think that there's almost a clearinghouse problem, right? If, if you think about the Let's Plays, I, don't, I think there are very few developers that would want to stop this this activity, but also it's completely impractical for them uh, to, to buy out um, or, I'm, I'm, yes, right, if, if, if a developer wants to stop this activity, I think we don't mind if they buy out the person, but that's never, it's just never going to happen. And so, uh, you know, in comparing how different developers have thought of their own games here, you, you have on one end kind of the what we've characterized as the Blizzard or, or the, the, the Microsoft and Bungie approach, which is they seem to think of it as very good. On the other hand, a company like Nintendo has always been very, very protective of, of, of their IP and has, has shut down a lot of streaming of their content um, and, and a lot of use of their content. And so I think what's interesting about this space is if you conceive of this as, well, maybe we think that, that the right should belong to the players or the people who are creating these new works unless um, the developer wants to buy them out, we, this would actually be a place in which we would expect a rule for type approach to produce um, socially beneficial results. Mm, mm. Well, so Remy, I mean, in, in closing, one of the things that I really liked about this paper 
is the way in which, especially toward the end, but really I think it's the spirit of the whole paper, it's sort of subtly um, subversive about the entire concept or kind of the entire traditional framework of copyright you're discussing. But because your solution, it seems to me anyway, is essentially to say, you know, what kind of outcomes do we want and what kind of doctrinal rules are most likely to get us there. And in in a way, that's kind of an inversion of the way courts usually think, although I think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I kind of wonder if you could reflect on that as a as a sort of rhetorical or conceptual move in the paper and what you think that ought to say to us, if anything, about how we think about what we do when we do copyright, uh, both practice and, and scholarship. What we talk about when we talk about law, yeah. Um, so... I want to start with a little personal history of this paper, because um, I, I think that that might be revealing in some ways, and, and maybe I'm going to admit too much. But this was published in, in NC Jolt in early 2018, but I wrote it in 2015 to 16 when I, when I was still um, wrapping up law school. Um, and so I think it has a lot of law student qualities in, in, in the way it approaches um, the doctorate, right? It, 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 it does kind of say, well, let's, let's look for socially beneficial results and craft our doctrine to get there. And it, it, it's naive in a way that I don't know that I could still write. <laughs> uh, but but I, I think you're right that it, that it, is, it, it is, it is the product of, of somebody who is, very much grappling with the applicable framework in, in an authentic way. And, and in a way that um, I think kind of having my career, having moved to the places it is where, where I've moved through big law and, and become a small firm partner, um, I, I now, um, I like to maintain myself as a scholar, right? I obviously publish and, and have appeared on a legal scholarship podcast twice now. Um, uh, so <laughs> when, when I think of my scholarship, I very much do think of it as, as kind of let's do that inversion, right? Like when, I, when I'm practicing and when I'm in front of courts, obviously we have to work from the doctrine to the result. But I think that the role of scholarship in many ways is, is to do the opposite, right? It's to say, okay, we've got all this doctrine. Um, and we, you know, maybe we've got some doctrines in analogous areas, or maybe we've got like these, these theoretical economic frameworks and, and we provide the kind of, well, if, if what we're looking for is, is this kind of outcome, here's one way to get there. Um, one thing that's very interesting to me about IP type areas of law is I think more than many other areas of law, and maybe it's because, you know, uh, the heavy hitters in, in the context of litigation often appear on both sides of cases. So um, it, it is a regime that, that in some ways, but, but, you know, there are obvious exceptions to that. And I think there are, there are people who get screwed in, in consistently in a, num in a variety of IP contexts. But by and large, um, the big rules in the area are, are designed to give you predictable and efficient outcomes. And so 
one of the things that an area of law like that lets you do is it, it, it lets you kind of come at the doctrine because the doctrine is explicit about what it wants. Um, and so for copyright, it's we want to maximize the number of works created, right? We want, we want, and, and we want to strike in the constitutional sense, this balance between the public interest in, in access to the works um, with the private interest um, and an incentive effect of giving people ownership rights in this stuff that ultimately we think belongs in the public domain. Um, so, so, right, all of these goals are set out in the doctrine, are, are set out in, in, the, in the foundational cases. So we get to kind of play with the question of, well, how well are we doing at getting those goals? And, and we get to kind of ask that kind of question um, in, in the way I, I think I try to in this paper. Um, so I know there, there were a couple other hooks in, in that question that were fascinating to me that I wanted to get into. So what did I miss? <laughs> yeah, I mean, mostly just, I mean, I, I mean, I, I get, I guess the, 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 the key takeaway for me about what you were doing in this paper was this kind of subtle way of initially framing it as a doctrinal paper, but really writing it as something quite different and much more theoretical. And, and I see what you're saying about it having kind of certain sort of student qualities, but I felt like there was something really different and much more, um, <clears throat> much more creative going yeah. on at the same time. Right, so, so that 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 was the big hook. Uh, the there there is something that undermines the entire doctrine in this paper, perhaps, um, and I think that's right. Um, I, I don't know that I would characterize it as as an explicit goal so much as a a personal tendency to not be able to avoid poking the bear, um, which which I know we share, right? <laughs> um, uh, and and in fact, most of your scholarship. Uh, or not most of, but perhaps a lot of your scholarship amounts to bear poking. And, and I wonder if this is going to break if I touch it this way. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. This is the story of my life. <laughs> and, and so I'd like to think of this paper, uh, yes, as absolutely doing that, because there is this problem, which is that the, the current rule, if you take it to its logical conclusion, says that Microsoft could flip that switch and decide they own the entire Western canon. And that's wrong. And, and, and right, it's, it's wrong in a way that if no one points it out, we're going to drift there and have a lot of um, ownership that I think is bad along the way before anyone figures it out. And so, yeah, I, I think the place I want to go with this paper is that's, you know, this is a slippery slope. I promise you there's no backstop on the way down. So yes, like I, I will accept the doctrine and look where this doctrine leads us. Mm, mm, um, yeah. and, and maybe that's no more than a traditional slippery slope argument, but, but I think you're right that it's, it's subtler. Um, and it's, it's, it's uh, what, what's the mathematical word for it? It's, it's the, it's the proof by, uh, by absurd conclusion um, when when you assume an axiom that that you want to disprove. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, I think that's great. Well, Remy, thanks so much for coming on the show again. This was a real pleasure. 
Uh, I love the paper and it was a real pleasure talking to you about it. I hope, I hope listeners will check it out because like I said, there's a ton of Easter eggs in it and it's even, it's as much fun to read as it is to hear about. Trust me. Thank you so much, Brian. Yeah. I, I, this one in particular, I think is, is some very light reading. It, it, it is, it is written so that it could have been published, um, outside of the legal academy. Cause we've got to save the city. Missile 
Eso 